Welcome to our Transgender School podcast. We're here to talk about diverse transgender identities and experiences so that we can all be better allies and advocates. We'll also discuss current events, welcome guests, and share actions you can take to support trans people. I'm Bridget, and my daughter Jackie came out as a transgender woman about four years ago when she was 19 years old. I was totally unprepared, but I have learned a lot since then. And now Jackie and I are passionate about sharing what we've learned. When I came to terms with being trans, I realized that I absolutely needed to transition, but coming out was very stressful. Now that a few years have passed, things have gotten somewhat easier, and I want to help other trans people navigate their own unique experiences. So let's go ahead and start the conversation. I'm going to dive in. I know you're all excited to meet our guests today. And thank you for being here to watch us and to participate with us. And before we dive into the conversation, I really want to take a minute to introduce our guest and how honored Jackie and I both are to have our guest here today. And we both had conversations with him outside of this in preparation and I, in all of that, I kept saying, I wish you were recording this pre-conversation because it's so rich and amazing. And so I'm so excited that you're here with us today, Del. So let's dive into the introduction. Listen to all of this. You will be very impressed. Del Lampkin is the founder of Harbinger Horizon, which provides professional development solutions for individuals and organizations in the areas of workplace harassment prevention, cultural diversity, team building, workplace safety, and adult learning, and a lot more. (laughs) That's just the tip of the iceberg. Harbinger Horizons provides mentoring, facilitation, and compliance training for businesses and organizations throughout all of California. They do amazing work. And I know people who have been part of Dell's trainings and programs, and they just rave about them. Dell holds an advanced Peace Officer Standards and Training, P-O-S-T, Professional Peace Officer Certification, FEMA Emergency Management Instructor Certification, and State of California Department of Justice Commission on Post-Immediate Instructor Certification. He currently serves as an advanced training officer for one of the largest law enforcement agencies in California, and he also is an incident manager incident management team officer conducting technical planning during incidents demanding substantial law enforcement response and resources to natural disasters and civil actions. He has expertise in WMD, hazmat evidence collection, pandemic planning and preparedness, special event contingency planning, management of civil disturbances, and several levels of national incident management systems. It could go on and on. We actually abbreviated this, believe it or not, but I'll just say he's worked extensively with many populations, including youth groups, civic advisory committees, inmates in the county jail system, aspiring law enforcement professionals, film industry professionals, and many more. And personally, I have worked with Dell myself. We've talked many times and had great conversations. We have co-facilitated a Google I Am Remarkable workshop, which we're both certified in, and it was a fantastic experience. I hope we get to do that again. And every conversation that I've had with Dell, I learn something new. I look at something in a new way. 
And I find some opportunity to cross, the, to, to be bridge builders together and cross gaps where people think that people can't connect and find common ground and understand one another. And we believe, we all believe that we always can. So that's what the conversation is about today. I could go on and on about Dell, but we're going to start the conversation. And Dell, I'll just turn it right over to you, Dell. Well, actually, Jackie, go ahead and say hello, and then we'll turn it over <laughs> to Dell to see do you want to just say hi, Jackie, and introduce yeah, yourself briefly well, in case anybody doesn't think, know you? <laughs> I think most of you know me. I'm, I'm Jackie. I live in San Francisco. I'm a public servant here. I'm political organizer. And yeah, really glad to have this conversation today. I'll let you cover anything in the introduction that you wanted to mention. And then I'll lead off with the first question, which is just how can we build trust between law enforcement and the LGBTQ community? Yeah, so absolutely. So first off, thank you so much for having me. And talking about, you know, just being in those political environments, that's the one thing I found right off the back when I first spoke to you, Jackie, that me and Jackie have the very same interest, which is serving our communities. We do it at different capacities. I think back, however, before going into law enforcement, some of the social campaigns that I, I was even a part of, growing up as a youth in a very impoverished community, I found myself becoming active in a lot of social activities related to building better communities. And so one of those in particular is the campaign back in 2000, the Justice for Janitors campaign, where janitors and underpaid workers throughout all of uh, California were seeking better wages. And so this was a campaign that I thoroughly enjoyed because I, it, it took me away from what were the needs for myself and my community and putting myself in someone else's shoes. And where we saw um, predominantly a lot of Hispanic communities that were and a lot of other underprivileged communities that weren't getting paid what they were deserved, what they deserved for doing some of the phenomenal work that that goes unnoticed a lot of times in a lot of our businesses, a lot of our hotels, a lot of our uh, other government buildings. So and then with that, also, I mentioned to Bridget some time ago about my experience with the you may be familiar with this California versus versus state of California lawsuit, which demanded better school conditions in the state of California. Back in 2000, that was a lawsuit that was launched with the support of ACLU. And it allowed myself and a little over 100 other students throughout the state of California to be heard demanding better school conditions, better facilities, better books, better credentialed teachers. Because in a lot of cases in schools that I went to, these were schools that didn't have credentialed teachers. They were on emergency credentials. And we weren't being able, we weren't afforded the same access as uh, many other students in more affluential communities. This is something that I can relate with, Jackie, when it comes to fighting for equality and, and also equity in many cases. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dell. Your first question, uh, you, the, the question you raise is, uh, how can we build trust between law enforcement and the LGBTQ community? And it's like we're kind of just jumping right into it. <laughs> um, the first thing I think of is, you know, just having a little bit of empathy. I know empathy is such a small word, but it has so much meaning. And so when we use the word empathy, the first thing I think about is Sir Robert Peel, who is a very famous person in the law enforcement realm. We like to say that uh, Sir Robert Peel is the grandfather of modern policing or what is also known as community-oriented policing. And there's one thing that he said, and, and he said that the police are the public and the public are the police. And 
when you hear that statement, it's a bit of a reminder that just like every profession, law enforcement officers, they come from the very same communities that they serve for the most part. And so anytime we're trying to figure out how can we communicate better with anyone in, in, in our communities, we have to remind ourselves that, you know, police officers don't come from, you know, some other planet or some other area. They come from the very communities that we serve. And so with that, we do have from what I recognize in many law enforcement agencies in California, we do have people in law enforcement that are transgender. And so, and it's identical to to the same demographics as the transgender community in California, as a matter of fact, throughout the entire nation. When it go, going back to that empathy, the first, the one of the things I think about is the easiest way to answer that question is asking myself when a law enforcement officer knocks on my family's door, how do I expect them to treat my family? And we all know the answer. I would want law enforcement to treat anyone the same way that they would treat my family in their time of need when they're at their worst. Um, because as we already know, it, you know, when you call 911, it's not because you're having a good day. You know, you're usually calling 911 when you've exhausted all options. And so that's extremely important that essentially you want a law enforcement officer when they're communicating with someone from the LGBT community to treat you the same exact way that they will want their family to be treated when they come to their aid or when they come to their need. So what about you, Jackie? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I completely agree with everything you said. And I do feel like there's I don't know. I'm sure you can speak to this better than I can, but I also feel like there's maybe a generational divide there too in some law enforcement in terms of diversity and inclusion and views on trans people and all of that. And I feel like it's often hard to overcome these inherent biases that we have, especially when we're talking about trans people. I've noticed that for some reason we tend to be a really polarizing issue. You're either fine with us or you're really not. So I guess one thing that I wonder is just what, and I don't even know the answer to this, but it's just my answer to the question basically is I I do feel like there should be mechanisms in place for holding officers accountable if they do something like misgendering someone who's involved in a report or something like that so that there's actual accountability there too. And so that those behaviors don't continue, even if the person holds those personal beliefs. Yeah. I mean, I I totally agree. I think that um, not just saying misgendering, but deliberately misgendering Mm -hmm. someone I think that's extremely important because like everyone, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone has makes a decision based off of first impression. But then you have people in society in general, and it's not just law enforcement, it's just people in in society in general. They have these different values that they hold, these different beliefs that they hold. And for whatever reason, they can't seem to put those things aside in consideration for just simply wanting to serve others. When I think of, you know, serving someone who is a part of transgender community, of course, everyone is going to have their own values and their own beliefs. But the question is, at what st- how important is that to actually building a, a trust? How important is that over building a relationship with, a, and it's, it's a te- usually a temporary relationship, whether it be five minutes or five hours, that temporary relationship with someone who is in need, someone that needs help. Regardless of what someone's values and beliefs are, I can tell you a lot of times when you take that time to use proper pronouns to make sure that you take that time to identify someone by by the gender that they want you to identify them as it cuts down on so many other issues like use of force as they would say in the law enforcement entity and in law enforcement world 
usually we create, you know, we, we create our own force, <laughs> you know, because we are so caught up in our own values and our own beliefs. And I want to say our, I'm just saying people in general, we get so caught up in what we actually believe that it causes us to create a, a, a situation or make a situation more volatile than what it actually needs to be. Mm-hmm. So I totally agree with you on that. I, I have a little follow-up. I, I have a follow-up question. I love everything you're saying, Dell, and I think it's really important for everyone to hear. And we so appreciate it. And in the conversations that you and I have had, I'm so impressed by how aware you are of all this. And, you know, to Jackie's point, I wonder if some of it is generational. Like, does everybody, is everybody aware of the things you're aware of? And so I want to pick your brain in a second about how the train, like what kind of training is happening around all of this, you know, and which you're part of, you lead. But, you know, you've talked to me about really specific examples where I was so impressed with how aware you were, like, if a law enforcement person has to write a report and there's a transgender person, like maybe they, you would be concerned that you might out them to their family if their family sees the report. So what do I put on the report and being so sensitive and aware of like all the different impacts, right. Or, you know, using, like you said, using knowing pronouns and knowing names and gender and, you know, and identification and, you know, and so you're so aware of all these things, what kind of training, and you also do training on diversity and cultural diversity and inclusion. Like, I want to believe that all law enforcement officials are learning these things. Is that happening? What's happening out there? Tell us. (laughs) Well, I can tell you, I can't speak for any one particular agency or organization, but I can tell you what I've seen in my experience and things that the messages that I convey to different law enforcement agencies when I do have the opportunity to speak with them. And that is, again, reminding them that we need to, you know, whatever those values and beliefs are, whether it's for or you have your conscious biases uh, related to someone in the LGBTQ community, not just that, but also be mindful of, you know, when you show up to someone's home to take a report. A lot of people in the transgender community may not have shared with their family members that they're transgender. So, you know, when their name is ends up on a police report, that's a big deal. It's so much of a big deal that when you as that police officer at, are at that person's home, their attitude changes and sometimes it's a bit aggressive. And I understand that it's, it's, they're not aggressive because of you. They're aggressive because of the things that they're thinking of, thinking about in the back of their mind, which is, you know, if I go to jail or if I am a victim or if I'm listed as a witness on a police report, that is a permanent record that my family could potentially find or see. You have people that are in different various communities, LGBT communities, Q communities that, again, did not share any of this with their families. And so, you know, when they have to do the follow up of the family calling them and asking them, hey, are you OK? I heard you got into a violent incident, a domestic violence incident. And they notice on that that the domestic violence, for example, a female is in a domestic violence incident with another female The family members are going to ask questions. Well, what do you mean you had a domestic dispute with another female? You know, I thought you were just friends. I thought you were just roommates. And turns out you were actually in a relationship together. And so now that can be very traumatizing for someone who is, let's say, lesbian. Someone who is, you know, even with a male being involved in a domestic violence incident with another male. You know, that that can be very traumatic, especially if that male individual did not inform their family that they were possibly, I mean, that they were actually gay. It's a big deal. 
So these are things that we really need to be mindful of. And I think it, it goes back to when I think about uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. He famously uh, wrote in The Soul of, uh, of Black Folk that one must have a double consciousness. And that's you being aware of your perspective of things, but also as a law enforcement officer, which he didn't mention law enforcement. But when you're talking about the perspectives in general, I know as a law enforcement officer, I need to have my be aware of my own perspective, but also be aware of the perspective of others. So when I see someone that's agitated, someone who's upset, especially when they're a victim, I have to take a step back and realize that, you know, if they're not upset at me, they're looking at other consequences that I personally do not have to address. I could possibly help them with that situation and talk to them and letting them know that, you know, you're a victim. So you're for the same rights as anyone else and maybe be someone that can offer some bit of counseling. But at the end of the day, this is a, a bigger issue for them than it is for me just showing up at the doorstep, taking a report and walking away. The other thing that I am aware of going as, or I should say the discussions that I'm having in, in different organizations is how you document those incidents where, you know, we get into this uh, dilemma of what someone's name is on a government ID versus how they identify or the name that they have as a person. And so we have to be mindful that even changes where, yeah, we do have to it's important that we document a person's legal information, legal name, what their sex says according to their identification. But also we write within that report that this person is transgender and is choosing to be or is further going uh, by the name of whatever that name, their name is that they want it to be in the report. And in that report, as we're telling the story of what happened or the statements that's given, we actually write we actually use the appropriate pronouns in that report. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are all such great points. And the thing I want to touch on what you said at the very beginning, which is that, you know, you can't speak for law enforcement in general because it's that's kind of the part of the problem, I feel like, is that there's a patchwork of agencies at the city and county and state and federal level that cover different jurisdictions and have entirely different training standards. And so it's interesting for me to think about how much some of this could or maybe, I don't know, is worth taking a shot at on the policy level. Like not every law enforcement agency is going to be lucky enough to have someone like you to help teach them all these things. But we can create, you know, nationwide standards and we can try to implement those. And we have and the Justice Department has in the form of consent decrees and other things. And unfortunately, local law enforcement agencies have largely failed to implement most of those or they've implemented a lot of them. But in a lot of cases, they've not implemented more than half of them cases where they've been like five years old and things like that. So I would say maybe to the Biden administration or People in Congress, if you're really serious about having those law enforcement reforms go through, start tying funding to it. See what happens there. And then also like other examples at the state level, like New York recently repealed its loitering with intent law, which was um, largely used to target trans sex workers because you could basically imply that if someone was dressed a certain way, looked a certain way, standing in a certain spot at a certain time of day, then therefore it was justified for police to interact with them or thinking about the even more subtle ways, not necessarily in the criminal justice system, but that our society still works against trans people. Like, why is it that so many trans people have an ID that has their dead name on it? Because it's really hard. Even in some of the most progressive states like California, it's really hard. It's a lot of paperwork to to change your name and to get that new ID. And that's a barrier for a lot of people. So yeah, so many things we could change on a policy level. And I really appreciate the way you're highlighting those. 
Yeah, I, I would definitely say, you know, law enforcement agencies, just like any other uh, business, because law enforcement is a business. You want to be able to provide exceptional service. We're always trying to figure out a way to revolutionize the way that people do business. And a lot of times it's we like to think that the way you do business is done by innovation. It's done by someone come up with the next greatest ideal. But a lot of times that's not the case. Uh, in many cases, it's, it's done by force. And that force is through consent decrees. I challenge um, every law enforcement agency to create policy, not because it's a flavor of the month or because it's something that they're being forced to do, but to really consider doing it um, as a, a means to revolutionize the way that we provide service to others. And then I know you mentioned that you highlighted New York. New York has constantly been challenged with different legal practices that contradict this ideal of inclusiveness, this ideal of treating everyone with equality. And I think back to the Stonewall incident of the late 1950s or 1960s, where, you know, you had laws in place where the governor at that time suggested that being gay, being transgender was a public nuisance. And as such, you know, he relied heavily on the law enforcement uh, agencies to go into gay bars and transgender bars and and those and different other social gatherings of sort and essentially commit violence on on those who are simply gathering with like-minded people or people that they felt safe around. Mm -hmm. So it's a constant challenge. And I also want to take that time to say that any organization or any law enforcement entity in one area that conducts business in a certain manner does not reflect all of law enforcement as a whole. And just like any other profession, you're dealing with imperfect people trying to do an imperfect job for an imperfect community. So, you know, with all the things that are occurring throughout the United States, these various incidents, specific incidents that are occurring related to racial inequality and many other inequalities of underrepresented communities, know that regardless of what your side is, regardless of what your opinion is about the matter, whether some people have more knowledge of what actually occurred and what didn't, the important part is to know that it is not a reflection of all of law enforcement. Um, we're talking about a singular incident that gets highlighted and sensational. And we think that every law enforcement agency is the same. Every law enforcement officer is the same. I know speaking for myself as a peace officer, I have no connection to it other than the fact that other than the, uh, other than the, it being my profession, I have no connection to a lot of the incidents that occur throughout the United States. So. Mm-hmm. Do you think, Dell, that your experience growing up gives you more of that capacity for empathy? I mean, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be this incredibly successful person with a business, you know, doing all the amazing work you do? And I can't help but wonder if they're if it's all connected to, you know, some of the things you experienced in your early life. Yeah, I mean. I didn't think we were going to get to this point. But, <laughs> but, we know, kind of went backwards, you know. We yeah, started, I, yeah, you know, uh, I grew up in, and I mentioned this kind of, sort of, I, I grew up in uh, very, I wouldn't say poor, because in order to be poor, you have to know what it's like to have something. I grew up in a very empowered community in Los Angeles, and right in the heart of the LA riots in 1992, I remember being a kid and, and being in school right down the street from uh, the infamous Florence and Normandy intersection mm-hmm. where Reginald Denny was dragged out of his vehicle or out of his uh, truck and was uh, beaten. That's just one area that I highlight. But I grew up in that neighborhood that was uh, filled with crime and addiction and it was a low income community. Mm-hmm. I look at my experiences then and it just 
that is what was a bit of a motivating factor for me wanting to go into law enforcement. And to be honest with you, it wasn't because of what I saw law enforcement doing, but it was more so of what I didn't see. I saw a lack of law enforcement, not just a lack of law enforcement, but also law enforcement showing up after the damage was already done. Mm -hmm. Seeing some of my friends be shot and killed on the, actually witnessing some of my friends Mm -hmm. being shot and killed, seeing a lot of the People just wanting some type of sense of security and hope. Mm-hmm. You know, growing up and hearing gunshots, it wasn't you got on the phone and called 911. It was, you know, your mom's yelling at, uh, across the room saying, okay, just lay down on the floor mm-hmm. and hope no bullets come through the apartment. But my, I, I grew up in a single home. My mom, a Vietnam veteran, was raised uh, was raising three kids uh, on her own on a very fixed income. Quite interestingly enough, I actually was with my mom not too long ago and she worked for the federal government and we we were going through some old photo albums. We found a pay stub uh, from the 1980s where it showed that every uh, two weeks she was making about 562 bucks <laughs> every wow. two weeks. And, and, and how mm-hmm. she managed to raise three kids on that type of budget is, mm. I would never understand, but she raised us to appreciate a lot of things. And then she also raised us with this sense of wanting to serve others. And it didn't matter. You know, my family, my, my mom was a Vietnam veteran. My dad was, my, my dad was, is a Vietnam veteran as well. And she, you know, all, even if we didn't go into the military, she just always had this, she always wanted us to serve others. And so when we talk about serving others, it wasn't, you know, restricted. It was not restrictive. It wasn't you serve these group of people or you serve just those group of people. It was you serve everyone, regardless of how they look, uh, regardless of their values and their own beliefs. But it's also an opportunity to learn from others as well. That's that's another thing where you get to immerse yourself in different cultures, different experiences that are much different than your own. And you learn so much as a result of that. Just like when I talked to Jackie a few times over the last few weeks and finding those things that we have in common. And, and But also it was a moment where I got to learn, just like we're sitting here today in transgender school. And here we are, take me to school. You know, I get the opportunity <laughs> to learn and get feedback on what will make me a better servant to others. So that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, for trusting us to share your story and share your thoughts, there's so much division out there we know in the world and so much, so many people who don't trust each other, understandably, just because of what their communities have been through and what like they've had to take the blame for things that other people have done that, as you said, they had nothing to do with. And, you know, so kind of leading into that question that we had, like, what do you see as someone out and about in all these different worlds as like, what, how do we bridge those gaps? How, what do you see works to help people come together, to trust each other, to break through those biases? You know, you're here with us, like you didn't know if we were going to fire away you know, critical questions. We wanted to do our best to assure you that we wouldn't, but we know you've been on the receiving end of tough situations where people make a lot of assumptions about you and it's hard to put yourself in that position. So I I could be a bit, you know, all over the place, but I'll highlight just a few things Mm -hmm. going back to growing up. No one would have ever expected in my community that someone who is African-American descent or Black to even go into law enforcement, especially when you look at today, it's mm-hmm. there, even that in and of itself has its own divisions. But again, it's the divisions that we like to highlight. We, we, draw, we have a tendency to draw these lines 
amongst people, not because of our actual, our own personal values and beliefs, but because of what someone else has shared with us. But then you start to ask the question as you start to grow up in life, who do you allow to see for you? I mean, really think about that. Are you making decisions based off of your wants and your needs? Or are you making decisions based off of what someone else tells you want and what someone else tells you that you need? That leads into this whole ideal of being, you know, being oppressed, where we are sending these messages that uh, there's a certain group of people or certain demographics of people because of their skin color. They are forever oppressed. They have they are they need the government assistance. They need, you know, all these different things from society. Well, I've never been someone that personally believed that. I think that, you know, I choose my own path. I choose which direction I want to go in life. And it's about making positive choices to actually get me there. And once you're there, you don't stop. You keep working at it. You keep, and, you, and, and I think that's how I got to where I am today, where I am in law enforcement. I am a successful business owner because I choose not to let someone else sell me oppression. And I choose not to allow someone to draw lines for me. But when you really think about that connection to, from that to, you know, having that experience to, you know, people in the trans, transgender community, that's another line that we are constantly drawing, you know, where someone told you that there's a divide uh, amongst between law enforcement and the transgender community. What we are seeing is we're seeing particular incidences that were that were plucked out, that are plucked out uh, of a police officer's everyday life. And we're using those to see, you know, to say, to have the I gotcha moment, to see, to the moment to say, hey, see, look, I told you there's all this uh, disparity. There's all these issues. No, that's just one moment in time. I can't tell you the, the countless of uh, the, the thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of positive contacts I've had with people of all walks of life while still dealing with my own biases that people have of me. The fact that I'm black. I, it's kind of like I say that thing where it's like I grew up as black, but the minute I decided to wear a uniform, I was no longer black to some people. Mm-hmm. You know, I was all those those rude things that people come that, you know, you, you hear about law enforcement officers, the traitor, the coon, the the Oreo, the coconut, Huda. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's all these names that have been bestowed upon me, not because of anything they know about me personally, but it's because of the profession that I chose. Mm-hmm. So just like just like you, Jack. Jackie, I'm sure just like you, you know, I'm dealing with my own challenges as well, but that doesn't stop me from making these connections between me and, you know, me and those that I find have a different culture, a different uh, lifestyle. It, we, we got to know when to put those things aside and say, Hey, look, that's not the fault of anyone else. What is, you know, who, what do I stand for? You know, you know, how can I make a connection? I take personal responsibility for being able to make those connections with people. So. Yeah. I think it's really powerful to hear you say that and gives us a unique perspective. And I think at the same time, I think it's important to, you know, infuse that mindset, you know, especially in young people, like you can do anything, even though there are absolutely constraints and challenges. We, I just want to make sure we also acknowledge, which I know you do as well, that some people have it harder than others, you know, that Jackie has said many times that as a white woman with socioeconomic privilege coming out and transitioning was different for her than it is for a transgender woman of color who is living in poverty or may be homeless or may, you know, I, I, 
talked about this before, but I read Janet Mock's book, Janet Mock, I don't know if you know her, but she wrote an amazing book called Redefining Realness and talks about growing up in poverty as a black transgender youth and how unsafe her life was in general and totally unsafe for her to come out and that she, you know, spent some time working as a sex worker because she did it to earn the money for her gender confirmation surgery, you know? And so just that intersectionality of, of challenges that, that some of us face and others don't, I think it's important to acknowledge those alongside at the same time, not that it has to be contradictory to everything you just said, that we can still also as educators, trainers, mentors, coaches, whatever we are, like try our best to help people see the power that they do have and the resources that are available and that they probably are capable of more than they've been led to believe, which is kind of what I heard in your story too. So it's hard to navigate both of those sometimes, you know, that validating and that acknowledgement that it is more difficult for some based on these factors. And at the same time, you can do it. You want to say like, you know, like, yes, we can rock Obama. You know, we can do what we want to do and not only for ourselves, but to serve others, as you say, always Dal. you know, I don't know if either of you have thoughts about how do we send both of those messages? It's tough. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I think I said quite a bit. I think I actually, I actually would love to hear like what Jackie thinks about this is, you know, and that will, in hearing what she has to say, for me, it's again, it's an educational moment. It's for me to learn how can I better serve others. So, yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I don't have anything against individualism. You know, I think I tend to look at as someone like who works in government, as someone who's worked on political campaigns, I tend to think about things in a more systemic institutional way, kind of trying to look at the big picture and, you know, like individualism, I think is good and works for the people who it works for, but for the people who are left behind, I do think that's why it's important that we create a stronger social safety net because when you look at the facts, it's unfortunate, but it's the reality that trans people are statistically more likely to be homeless and homeless people are statistically more likely to interact with the police because we have housed people calling the police on homeless people and often exaggerating what the people are doing to generate a police response. So, you know, if we had a society where things like housing, health care were basic human rights, I do feel like it would eliminate a lot of that. And to go back to what you said earlier about being a kid and police responding to crime rather than prevent it. I mean, that is something that is so true and so few people really understand is that it's very rare that police by their mere presence happen to come upon a crime in the middle of it and stop it from happening. It's much, much more likely that police are responding to a crime. And then there's a totally separate question of, well, how do we create a world where people don't want to commit crimes? And I I think that comes with affording a basic level of human dignity to every person, whether they're trans or, you know, whatever race they are, whatever gender they are. Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of crime. Crime is always going to exist as long as there's opportunity. But I think that a way of reducing crime significantly is something is, is, is we have to look at it from not just a law enforcement perspective. You know, again, I go back to that share that common bond that we will share in involving ourselves in a lot of political action campaigns and social campaigns. And I look I really think about, you know, the transgender community who may not have been able to finish school, not even because Mm -hmm. of academics, but because Mm -hmm. of the fact that they don't feel comfortable being in school. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that Mm -hmm. causes its own disparity. That causes the opportunity for transgender 
people to become homeless. And so we have to figure out how do we, you know, create an environment for our schools where, you know, those who are transgender feel more safe to mm-hmm. be able to come to school and not at, at all levels mm-hmm. from kindergarten all the way up to college. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we build an environment where everyone feels uh, that is afforded the same opportunities of after school programs and mm-hmm. outside resources? And, and even like you said, housing, that's extremely important. It, it really is a holistic approach. I can only speak from the law enforcement perspective with, with using a lot of my past history to kind of make these nexuses and these connections. But in all fairness, I think that it's an approach that you no know, needs to go far beyond law enforcement. Because mm-hmm. um, law enforcement obviously mm-hmm. isn't the first contact or the first contact of authority that anyone has. Mm-hmm. It's usually the parents. And so even we ask ourselves, what, what are we doing as parents to help our you know, kids who may be transgender? What are we doing for them as well? Are we supporting them? Are we very, are we empathetic to, to their needs? Mm-hmm. These are all important things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you for saying that. Absolutely. That's a lot of the work we do is working with parents and family members and, and hearing from you hopefully reinforces that as well. You know, that people, regardless of whatever stereotypes are out there, people from every field and every walk of life are, are transgender, are LGBTQ allies as you and I are Adele and are doing our best to educate and create safe spaces in schools and in, in communities as much as we can. And you're right. And it really, you know, the family is, the research is very clear that when there's family support, outcomes are far better. So, so thank you for reinforcing that for us. It's a big part of our mission. What else, what, what other questions, thoughts do you have, Jackie? I don't know. I feel like we covered a lot of it. If you're listening in on the podcast, we are doing this on Facebook Live. And so we have a really lovely, engaged audience that's, and I don't know if you can see it or not at the moment, Al, but they're really appreciating yeah, I, I see conversation. One from, I see one from Elena and it's probably the last question. I just, I do find it important to kind of highlight that where she says that I'm, uh, I'm tired of children dying because we don't have enough inclusivity in schools. And the thing that comes to mind when I think about that is not even anything related to law enforcement, but I think back to when I was in school getting those meal tickets, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, um, there's, a, there's a lot of students that, you know, school is the only, uh, that is the only place where they get a meal. So mm-hmm. I think back, you know, when we look at the pandemic and what's occurring mm-hmm. with that, there's a lot of kids that aren't getting the nourishment and the nutrition that they would need because they're not in school. But then also we see a spike, an increase where now we're going into law enforcement realm where we're talking about a, a, a spike in child abuse. And when you're seeing a, a spike in reported child abuse, it really begs the question how much child abuse is occurring that's going unreported, right? Yeah. So these are things that I think about when I saw Elena's comment that is concerning. And of course, it's not just a law enforcement approach. It's also making sure that we have schools that are providing resources, not just to a selective group of people in a selective region with the selective income. It has to be every school should be afforded the same resources to ensure the safety of our uh, students, to ensure okay. that you know, our students are actually getting enough nourishment for their growth. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to piss off a lot of white parents in wealthy suburbs, but I completely agree <laughs> with you. No, you're so right. Like that is the core of it is that school funding in this country for some asinine reason is tied to property tax values of whatever specific city or county you happen to live in. So it's basically like if you live in public schools are supposed to be public good for everyone, but you get a totally different experience based on property values where you live. What what is fair about that in any way? Jackie, I can remember Jackie going in when I was in high school. I went to two high schools and I remember, you know, we're in the same school district, right? The same exact school district. And I I actually went to Crenshaw High School the first two years of my high school years and Washington High School the last two years of my high school years. And it was very unfortunate to, as I started immersing myself in these different campaigns for, you know, making sure that students had A through G requirements. For those that mm-hmm. don't know what that is, it's the requirements needed in order to be to be eligible to go to college. To mm-hmm. think I was in a school where we were demanding, first off, courses where that we could take in school to be able to be eligible for college. Mm-hmm. And we weren't afforded those things. But the most simplest things, like a book. A book. I mean, we're talking about a history book where in the 90s, early 2000s, when I was in school, it showed that Ronald Reagan was the president, (laughs) you know, (sighs) and and here it is. While we were demanding uh, an upgrade in books, we also had other schools within the same district that were requesting pool filters for their Uh, pools. mm -hmm. And guess who got guess who got their needs met? Mm -hmm. And we already know it wasn't even really a need. It was a want. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and the excuse that was given to us when I was in school was, well, if your kids would stop tearing up the books, then they would probably have better books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, mm-hmm. I, it's very unfortunate. It really is. And how were these different, you know, how were the choices uh, made as far as who got what? It was all based off, of, like you said, the property tax. It was based off of, you know, was this community more affluent than the community of the schools that I went to? So, mm-hmm. 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 That's a great point. Even within a school district, the administrators are not going to be objective in looking at where they allocate resources because they know more of their money is coming from certain neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. So how do we, what do we do? Like Dell, you know, I know that you talk to a lot of people out there and you are a, a, a powerful public speaker. I keep saying everybody out there, we're going to get Dell his Ted talk. (laughs) You you need your Ted talk, you know, like what do you, and I know people who've been through like, you know, in-depth trainings with you who say it was incredibly powerful, life-changing, you know, like, can you give us, I know this is such a setup, like the pressure on you, but can you give us any taste of like, how do you teach some of this? How do you help people? How do you have that shift of heart and mind where you're touching people to understand all this? Because I know you are, you're out there doing it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I do is I don't facilitate. And I even try to refrain from using teaching mm. to say we're teaching. I, I, when I facilitate from a liberal arts standpoint, I do not facilitate based off of what I like to call a social justice warrior standpoint. In other words, you know, people who jump on these bandwagons, the flavor of the month, what's sensational, mm-hmm. what's hot. Mm-hmm. I can tell over the last uh, probably four or five years in talking about diversity, inclusion, talking about workplace harassment, opportunity, employment. These are things that I've immersed myself in that I thoroughly enjoy, not because it was a hot topic, but because mm-hmm. I really do feel that there is a, a need for facilitators to Every once in a while, we mind businesses of what the what's actually important. 
you know, a lot of businesses, a lot of organizations, they commonly focus on hiring people who meet the expectations of the organization. And we need to really focus on the flip side of that, which is making sure that the organization or the business is meeting the Mm -hmm. need or the expectations of the employee. Mm -hmm. We commonly forget that. And the times Mm -hmm. that we do have moments to talk about workplace harassment, the times we do have an opportunity to talk about cultural diversity and team building and team communication concepts, we, we do it out of compliance mm-hmm. and we really have to, we really have to shift a focus on that to not do it because we need to, but because we want to, this goes into, you know, my business's model, my company's model, Harbinger Horizon, where we are building stronger leaders, stronger organizations, starting with you. Mm-hmm. And depending on who's conveying that message, it has two different meanings. When I said, I'm starting with you as the individual, you are the person who can make the difference. You are the person who can actually invoke change or a culture shift in your organization or your business. When it's when someone's telling me, it, it really does start with me. You know, when someone's saying that same message to me, it really does start with me. So the question is, what am I doing to help create cohesive workplaces? What am I doing to bring people together? Well, part of what I'm doing is, coming to, you know, uh, uh, a live stream like this <laughs> where we get to have these conversations and break down some of these barriers mm-hmm. um, to be able to, you know, sit down with just an ordinary person. I'm an ordinary person. Jackie's an ordinary person, right? And we get to talk about just these different issues and I get to hear insight from her. She hears, hears insight from me and you start to realize there really isn't much of any differences between us. You know, we only have differences based on the lines that people have created for us. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll start there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. And it's true. And I can imagine you sharing that and people having to kind of reflect and look inward and say, oh, oh, we're starting with me. OK. Uh oh. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, what, like, what are you doing as an individual? Right. Right. And I, and, right. And, it's not even really a plug-in, but I know I, I, I showed you that video. I have a video out right now. I just yeah. reached about two weeks ago, and it talks about the individual contributions to society. What do we bring uh, as individuals to society? And, and I highly yeah. encourage everyone to view that. You can see it on my Instagram. It's also on my YouTube channel as well. It's individual responsibility to society. And it really uh, tells two stories. Um, the story of what we bring as individuals, uh, this ideal of what it really means, what the rule of law really means. But then the second story it tells is how we are, as people are, we're on a canvas and mm-hmm. we are all colors on that canvas contributing to what is not necessarily a perfect painting, but we're getting to that point. We're, we're trying to constantly build on that, creating this, this Picasso quality picture of a perfect society. So I'm going to put the link in one sec if everybody Don't leave anybody because I'm going to put the link to that. You have got to watch that video and we'll put it in the show notes for the and and of course, Dell's website for Harbinger Horizon. You've got to check it out and you've got to check out his videos. So powerful and so creative. Thank you. I'm hearing a a lot of good feedback and some of the thoughts that and some of the, you know, some of the thoughts that you have as far as the relationship with law enforcement. And, and it seems like it's even more global, Jackie. I like to talk about things from a global perspective because we're not pointing the finger. We're not putting the blame on anyone. I, one of the things that we talked about, and if you can kind of share your experience with in times where you may have had law enforcement contact and they've asked for your ID. What's your experience with that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I can only think of one time 
that I interacted with law enforcement where I was out, but I still had my dead name on my ID. And I pretty much just didn't really give them a chance to misgender me. I was like, Hey, I know it says that, but this is my name. I'm Jackie. And I just need to get it updated. And I guess, you know, I was presenting feminine enough that day, which is a a whole privilege and thing in and of itself. But like, you know, he looked at me, he was like, okay. And he just kind of went with it. So I, I felt very lucky in that moment. I was glad that he didn't make it an issue. I don't know if that was be, I, it, totally random. He was an Illinois state trooper. I was like driving home from a campaign in Michigan. So I don't know if that was because of training he'd been through or he was just a cool guy who didn't really care. <laughs> right. But yeah, that's my only interaction. I feel very lucky to have had it been positive because I know, I know a lot of trans women who have had, you know, not positive interactions. Yeah, that was a, it, it was, I, I was a very, I felt very fortunate to hear that. I hear that story from you when we, when you first told me, and it also allowed me an opportunity to learn as much as I talk about, you know, in, in, in cultural diversity courses that I facilitate, I talk about the LGBTQ community. I didn't even know what, you know, dead name meant. I didn't even know that was even a, a term. And so, you know, even when I was attending another transgender school, I believe it was a transgender school facts or tips. That was something I wrote down immediately. You know, and I felt like that would probably help me when I'm talking to someone who's a part of transgender community where it was it's weird. It's like I feel like I'm cool if I said, hey, just want to confirm this is your dead name. Correct. You know, what is your actual name? You know, to, to, to totally. say that, that I, I terminology, like, yeah, cool. You know, it's like, like, like it, it yeah. builds that bond. It's like, okay, yeah, this guy knows, you know, this guy knows. And he actually took the time to acknowledge that. So, yeah, I thought I would share that. Yeah, that's such a great point. That's uh, whether you're in law enforcement or just in life, using specific terminology that implies that you've actually maybe read something about trans people or, you know, maybe had a conversation with a trans person. That's kind of like a flag in my head. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. This person is not going to say something horribly offensive or that makes me uncomfortable or whatever. That's a good flag that someone is probably an ally. Which admittedly, and I think you would agree, and I want to know your thoughts about this. You're going to you're going to have I would imagine you're going to have law enforcement officers because not every law enforcement officer is as as much knowledge about the transgender communities. And so you're going to have officers make mistakes. They're not deliberate. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you agree like that's something that is bound to happen? And what are some of the things that you do to not come across as necessarily someone who's always correcting them, but someone who does want to ensure you provide some education to to a law enforcement officer when you're talking to them. Yeah, I think the point you made earlier about deliberate misgendering is a great point. And this is something that we've talked about on transgender school in, in other capacities and other areas of life, like grandparents who might take a little bit longer to come around in terms of using the correct pronouns, just because, you know, sometimes it gets harder to change things as you get older. And so I think that there's a really important distinction and I feel like trans people are often, I can only speak for myself, but as a trans person, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of whether someone is misgendering me because they're just making an honest mistake or whether they're being malicious about it. And I think, you know, the obvious giveaway is 
once you correct someone, if they keep doing it, if they write it down in a report, I think that goes beyond being a mistake, but I don't think we should punish people for making an honest mistake. I do think that it's a good opportunity to learn and and hopefully they, you know, are maybe if they're not sure they ask someone their pronouns in the future, but I don't think there's value in having some kind of punitive thing for an honest mistake. And I think that having a system that holds officers accountable when they do go beyond that honest mistake and they are deliberate about it, but that distinguishes in a clear way might be a good way to have accountability of like, look, we're not going to give you a hard time for making a mistake, but someone corrects you go with it. (laughs) Yeah. I do believe that there in general there, and this is in all parts of any business you're with, there needs to be some accountability when it's deliberate. And, you know, we start to, as we start to explore, what is that, what does that accountability look like? I start to look at not just necessarily, you know, punish someone with impunity, you know, the common things we hear like days off and loss of pay, maybe a lot of times for someone who may not be that culturally sensitive, I think that education-based discipline is necessary Mm -hmm. where you need to have someone attend a class um, that talks Mm -hmm. about culture and and culture diversity and inclusion and all the different many aspects of culture diversity. They go far beyond, you know, just, you know, ethnicity, race, skin color. It also, you know, talks about like what I like to talk about in my courses, which is the different cultures that exist that we that are go unseen, you know, the different cultures like urban culture or even the LGBTQ culture, because, you, you know, for someone who's transgender, you ask yourself, what does that look like? You know, when you see a female, they're a female. When you see a male, they're a male. And then you mentioned the, those who may not be as privileged to, you know, groom themselves to actually fit that, you know, that gender. That's in some cases an obvious, right? But then, you know, there are some like that really fit the mold. And you're, and it's, again, people need to understand that those are even differences. And it has to do with a lot of economic privilege. Mm-hmm. So these, that's yet another culture. You know, I think I mentioned urban culture. There's, you know, rural culture, there's music culture, pop culture. These are all different cultures that we need to talk about. Economic culture, you know, so extremely important. I know you mentioned generation gaps, right? And I heard you mention that a couple of times and even at the start of this. I I believe, and I'm a millennial, so I'll say that first. I'm on the farther end of the millennium spectrum, but I do see in the audiences that I talk to, if it gives some type of reassurance, I'm seeing amongst the younger generations that they are far more tolerant now than than what we were before. And I'd say that for two reasons, or I see that. And I think the reason is uh, because there's two reasons behind that. Uh, The first one is the fact that we have people in law enforcement community uh, that know someone who's transgender. Mm-hmm. Um, they know mm-hmm. someone who's gay. If I was to facilitate a, a class, a coach diversity class in the late 90s, I would imagine, or even early 2000s, and, and ask the question of, you know, and say, hey, raise your hand if you know someone who's gay. Uh, you probably wouldn't get any responses. And it's not because they don't know anyone who's gay. It's because it was like the thing you don't talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but in today's culture, in, you know, 2021, I, you know, I find that if you were to ask that question to the audiences of today, many people would raise their hand. And mm-hmm. why? Because not only because they know someone, but because it's now socially acceptable. So mm-hmm. that's one reason why I see, you know, things getting better and that, you know, there's a lot more acceptance. The other reason is simply because we're an even bigger melting pot, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, our communities are so diverse. Now we have these little pockets here and there where you have 
different races that are living in certain communities. And, you know, it's kind of like you're hurting in certain communities. But for the most part, as a nation, as a whole, we are becoming so diverse. There's not one person who can actually say they're 100% of anything nowadays, right? You know, so we're seeing a lot of diversity. I think that's the second reason. So, yeah. Well, I feel like as long as you're out there doing trainings, things are getting better. So, (laughs) yeah, we pluck pluck away at it. Someone once (laughs) told me that, you know, when it comes to, you know, how you go about doing your work, how you go about creating change, it's very much like a pie. Right. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in addressing how you're going to eat that pie, you cannot eat the entire pie. If you try to eat the entire pie, you're end up sick. So what do we do <laughs> instead? We take it in slices. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you can only control your slice. Right. Sometimes <laughs> a slice is a different flavor than the rest of the pie. Right. So but you only can be concerned with your slice at that moment. Don't try to eat the whole pie. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're gonna stress yourself out. I, it's my hope that, you know, the slices that I take. It, it leaves an imprint. It leaves an impression on people. And hopefully, you know, there's other people that will try to tackle that, that, that pie as well. And I see you two as allies in, in not just talking about transgender issues, but in talking about a wider variety of issues as well, that, that we're, we're talking about how do we build equality and equity. Mm-hmm. I see you as tackling that same pie with me. You're just eating a different oh, yeah. slice. So, yes. Yes. Yeah. We're all here. Some more pie, pie eating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks again so much for being here yeah. today and having this conversation. I really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. It thank was, you so it, much for having me. I appreciate it. it and thank you for very, educating me as, as as you have done on several occasions. You know, I think uh, that transgender school is a huge, huge deal because you know if anybody's ever curious about how do I invoke change, how do I create change, how do I encourage others to change they need to come and hear things like this where you see those connections being made where you're seeing those bridges being built to to show just how just how much you know people in society they want the same things you know they want safety they want equality you know they want inclusiveness they want cohesiveness Mm -hmm. so thank you Absolutely. Hey, before we let you go, though, we want to make sure everybody knows where they can find you. And I'm yes. sure people are going to say, I want to hear more from Dell and follow him. And yeah, so absolutely. You can, <laughs> you can find me. Uh, so my website is harbingerhorizon.com. And that's where we're building stronger leaders, stronger organizations, starting with you. And you can also find me on Instagram under Harbinger Horizon. You can find me on Facebook under Harbinger Horizon as well. And yeah. And, oh, and also on YouTube. So I have a few videos out there that, you know, usually when I upload them to Facebook and Instagram, they're usually shot over to YouTube. So I think we're going to wrap it up about here. We have a great rich conversation to share moving forward. This will be on our Facebook page for lots of people to learn from and enjoy and be moved by. And it will also be used as a podcast for a transgender school podcast. So thank you for being our guest in multiple spaces and places that we'll be able to share this with people with. And we want to stay in touch with you. Of course, we'll stay in touch and keep talking, keep having great conversations with you and figure out how we can partner together again soon. And very soon, we are going to be starting to release evergreen training programs, videos where we've uh, recorded ourselves and are teaching all of the things that you know that we feel so passionate about sharing in a way that people can access easily. And 
conveniently and watch on their own time if they can't make it to a live webinar. Right, Jackie? So anything yeah, more so to say look out about for all that great content? And thanks again, everyone, for joining us. Really appreciate yeah. it. Hope everyone has a great Saturday. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you for Thank all you. the hearts. Lots of hearts in the comments <laughs> and good, great messages. Thank you all so much. We're going to sign off. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to our Transgender School podcast. We hope you learned something new and that you're inspired to learn more. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And please be sure to check out our website, transgenderschool.org. You'll find many valuable resources there, including news about upcoming courses we'll be teaching. Make sure to join us for future podcast episodes. We'll catch you on the first Tuesday of every month.